Welcome to Coffee and Poets. The show is about to begin. That's right. We're at uh, Brick House Gallery in Historic Oak Park. This is Ensa's program, Coffee and Poets, conversation with poets over coffee. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, today is my first day doing this, like, not subbing. So I'm kind of excited about that. And I decided to bring in my good friend, Jason Shapiro. Thank Welcome to the program. Thank you very much yeah. for inviting me. It's uh, quite a pleasure to be here. Yeah. yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start really easy. Just the question I want to ask you is, um, I want to have we're just gonna do a little thing where we we match the ancient Greek part of speech mm -hmm. and rhetoric device and match it to the description. So we're gonna start with that. That's like okay. the easy. <laughs> I'm right here. I'm right here. Uh, part of speech. Let's go. Let's do it. How is Sac State going, by the way? Well, uh, the grad program is, is uh, it's probably not as difficult as some, and, and uh, some other uh, more prestigious type schools, but Sac State is uh, uh, you know, substantial enough to give you, if you put into it enough, that you'll get out of it what you need, and uh, it's rigorous, for sure. Uh, the creative writing program, a bit of a struggle with only having two figureheads, as, as it's... Uh, Monarchs, uh, or or, <laughs> or um, ship activity guys, if you will, for the prose and poetry. So that's that's really limiting. But other, but, but but luckily we have two fabulous people on each side of that spectrum. Right. So the the poetry and prose. Right. Creative nonfiction. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, sure. Mostly fiction for me. Mm -hmm. Lies. It's all lies. Mostly fiction for you. It's all lies. Oh man. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so the are you still doing the journal? I remember we did the Oh right, the still... journal. Yeah. What did I say about that when I answered I don't know. Something about the being a the tough mutter of publication processes. Um, yeah, that was rough. Yeah. Um, so the Calvary Station Journal, it had its um, it had its uh, difficulty getting going, but we always managed to publish a, a decent version of that at the end of the year. So uh, that went really well in the end, um, two years running, and now I am the advisor, or I, I have a whole new title I give myself, uh, associate <laughs> advisor, yeah, self-appointed associate advisor. I like it. Doing my uh, independent study, my 299 credit on creating a guideline for it, and it's more of a manifesto than bullet points of what to do and when. I mean, it is also what to do and when, but it's more of a manifesto. So, my, all my uh, all my drippings of the baking of that turkey for two years is going into it. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the program is I was thinking about we had we had taken at Sac State we'd taken eco poetics together, and that was yes. like that was a really formative class. I know for me, eco poetics was um, it it definitely. I, I think I'm going to look back even like many years from now and look back at that class as being formative for high right. But I was wondering, like I haven't actually talked with you about, since I left Sac State, I feel yeah. like sometimes we don't actually talk about poetry, which is great. But though I was just curious, I, was like, I thought I'd publicly say like, how, how, does, how did Eco Poetics affect you? Like how is that still, how is that permeating through your future writing? I know it's been, how yeah. long has it been? It's been like a year, two years since Eco Poetics? Feels, I can't remember. It feels like a long time ago. Yeah. But how, also, how is that? Well, tell us how would you okay. define ecopoetics, and then how is that affecting your writing? Well, so. I had a, I had kind of a similar experience with 
my very first class as an undergrad at Sac State, uh, which was critical literary uh, feminine analysis of literature. Not because I already said literary, so that's what that is. But um, whereas I thought I was a feminist, and then I discovered this whole new this world that I was like, oh, I'm clearly not what I thought, is, you know. But it was it was something that, like like you said, formative. And uh, similarly with ecopoetics, I thought I was a green thinking individual, and uh, found a whole new form of meditation through ecopoetics. In fact. Um, I often go back to uh, Lawrence Buell's uh, Four Principles. For, in fact, I have that right here. Let's pull these out. Let's, let's take a look. That. Let's take a look at the Buell <laughs> Principles of Ecopoetics for a moment. <laughs> Kenneth Burke is also a huge contributor this, this here. This book is um, yeah, this Greening is, the Liar. And it's, um, who's the author again? It's um, uh, David Gilchrist. Gilchrist. Yes. If you can find it, it might be out of print. <clears throat> if you can find it, it's pretty cool if you're wanting to learn more about ecopoetics. So let's go. Okay, so the first principle from Lawrence Buell. The non-human environment is present not merely as a framing device, but as a presence that begins to suggest that human history is implicated in natural history. Now some of these, it, it, once you pick up on what they're talking about here, it's, you feel like you want to say, well, duh. I mean, that's, I mean, we are, okay, so without all that geological time that existed before us, the billions of years of the Earth's processes that happened, the animals that came along, the extinction level events, the reset that happened, and then here we are. How can we not go, oh yeah, we're, we're kind of implicated in that, that that came before, otherwise that we wouldn't be here. So that's a, that seems to be a, a no-brainer. Let's get to number two. The human interest is not understood to be the only legitimate interest. Well, okay, we can get wrapped up in capitalism. We can look at our things in our life, and we have some beautiful things we can look around that are created by human hands in this room. Um, however, <laughs> they were derived from materials that came, again, long before us. And, um, and so we owe something to uh, the previous, and the previous uh, does not necessarily include us. So yes, we must absolutely understand that um, that ours was not the legitimate interest, or the only legitimate interest. The third one is human accountability to the environment as part of the text's ethical orientation. Okay, well, I mean, if you look at the latest graphs on CO2 levels or um, temperature levels, which are going hand-in-hand, -hand, which is a very interesting correlation, um, we see that the CO2 levels are higher than they've been in hundreds of thousands of years, according to our uh, measurement of CO2 in, uh, or the atmospheric gases and ice core drilling. So we can see far back and uh, accurately plot that. And, and they're just way higher than they used to be. And I know people want to say, oh, we get hurricanes all the time. No, we, the, the hurricanes we just had were, were kind of unprecedented. unprecedented. Uh, then let's see, the fourth one. Uh, some sense of the environment as a process rather than a constant or a given is at least implicit in the text. So, thinking of um, looking at a glacier for a moment, and yes, there are, again, going back to the heating of the earth, there are um, pulses and undulations in the, uh, the extension and recession of a, of a glacier, but this is a process that over time we have shown to see uh, that the glaciers are practically disappearing um, in 
in Chile, glaciers that used to be there year round are now disappearing entirely in the, um, in the summer times. So, uh, yeah, it is a process. And right now it's a process that is going to a more arid and um, less habitable type realm. Right. So how have those yeah. affected like your, like your writing, like what you go, when you go forward? Like do you just feel like do you just like look at those principles and then try to apply those when you write a poem, or is it more subtle than that? Well, yeah. There's other <clears throat> there are other more subtle elements uh, in the in the dictate of or in the philosophy, I should say, not dictate of um, ecopoetics. And uh, one thing is that you definitely want to uh, represent uh, nature in your work, but you have to avoid the the representation. Sorry, you have to. Uh, avoid the advocation of it, uh, because once you enter into the realm of um, pontificating on about what I'm speaking about now, I couldn't just put this into a poem because it's it sounds like a, a protest that is not really giving due credit to nature's grandeur. And all you really have to do is is if you can embody that in a work, nature's grandeur, um, then it speaks for itself. And then it calls attention to itself, and it no longer needs the writer, the voice of the poet, to to uh, expose what is necessary to pay attention to. I think that's one of the that was one of the things that I found really interesting about that, as far as writing is like the the effort to sort of somehow just let the thing stand right. on the page. Right. It's sort of weird. It's like it's like trying to paint the space around the thing as opposed to the thing itself. It's it's a really difficult thing, way to write, but it's it's kind of, it, that is the goal, I think, to sort of like let those things stand on their own. Sure. Um, it's a little bit less Mary Oliver and a little more like, yes, weird. Brenda Hillman, yeah. weird, you know, yeah, exactly. like sounds, very, like yeah. just animal sounds. Animal sounds on a page, and it doesn't look very, <laughs> it doesn't look like a poem, but like the kind of the effort is mm -hmm. to capture that. Do you have a, do you have a poem to, is it like a, from that vein that you could read? Oh, um, I have... A bunch of different poems that are. Let's do a poem. Okay. Do a okay. poem. Do, do a poem, Jason. Do a poem. Do a poem. Um, okay. I'll, first, I'll do a funny one uh, to start. Uh, or, or humorous. I should say humorous because funny is not really. We're going to do a funny. This isn't the, this isn't comedy, but it is mildly amusing. Uh, this is called. It's gonna uh, be the tag for the show. This isn't wow. comedy. But it's mildly amusing. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is called uh, Jokiko Poetics, spelled J O K E C O Poetics. So you get the Jokiko. Anyway, Eco. <laughs> we're all going to regret this. I'm going to. This is my Let's last day on this planet. Um, dung beetles roll their quarry in eccentric circles lost without the sun or a milky way to compass them. On a cloud-damned night, what do you do with that ball of shit? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's a really good one. That's uh, kind of amusing, but... Uh, I mean, I think it does actually encapsulate that, that, that ego-poetic thing. It was like a very small... It, it does, it does, thing. because it's, it's still... It's, I mean... Put aside all the humor, it's still begging the, the, the reader to ask themselves, yeah, well, what do you do with all that? I, so what's going to happen when, you know, <laughs> we have a situation where 
uh, we've created cloud cover so intensely from the evaporation of the oceans that we can't see the stars anymore. What, what is the dung beetle going to do? You know, how's it going to find its way? They did studies where they put a little hat. This is kind of cute. Or you imagine a dung beetle <laughs> with a little little helmet on it, um, so it can't see where it's going. And it and it did. It just uh, it went in circles. That's where that poem came from. I was listening to a study about that. And uh, yeah, so anytime there's a, a little animal under some sort of home uh, investigation to see how its behavior works in the wild, um, I'm always my ears always perked up to that. I'm always listening a little closer. Uh, you're, that's you're, what we have our studies yeah, for. Yeah, that's for so. poets to get poem fodder. For sure. Um, I could do one more example of an eco sure, poem that is not um, that is not as all at all meant to be humorous. <laughs> oh wait, wait. You know what? I'm sorry. I'm going to do one more that is meant to be humorous. Okay. This is kind of a shitty poem. Again, another <laughs> shitty poem. This is the this is called Backyard. Just the sight of them. There, now, there, emerald thorax, glints of green, flash sunlight, sparkling gems. A feast, a nursery, a blessing. Eat, spit, eat, spit, eat, spit. There, food. Their birth, their food, the fecal sheen, monumental dark against the sand, small white fetus, their children, their larvae, maggots, marvelous. <laughs> it's difficult to do with a straight face, which I cannot do. Okay. <laughs> so, and uh, I mean, Imagine that everything that is your life is in one place. It's so convenient. It's, uh, it just happens to be a pillar of dog poop in the backyard. Now, I'll do, uh, I'll do one that is um, a little bit more serious. It's uh, about um, uh, the first wolf that entered into the region of the Grand Canyon in, in forever. Uh, wolves used to be part of the wildlife of the Grand Canyon in uh, they hadn't been for quite some time. This is called uh, Gray Eyes. Then it has that little technique where the title becomes the part of the beginning of the poem. Gray eyes cut the canyon deep to east to west. Red walls rich in iron. Oxidized fire. The settled sun above emerald water. Eclipsed at an elbow, no, a haunch rather. The wind howls against her flank, above. The white plume, a puff across the spance. The strike, pierce, report, a stolen glance, a glint of light. The scope is large, she has no heaven. Keep it for echo, the hoolapai. Your children, your children's children, and all who come after you above the emerald water. And so, yeah, um, 
Hunter had come along and thought, uh, huh, that's uh, something moving on the other side of the canyon there. I'm going to set up my scope on this. Now, this particular wolf had a tracking collar on it, a very prominent element on a wild animal. And uh, in the scope, this high-powered scope this uh, hunter used, that would have been evident. The uh, hunter claims he saw a coyote. Even though it's not illegal to shoot a coyote, he's shooting it simply for sport. He's not doing anything with that animal. He's just going to shoot it, in fact, leave it to die where it is. But it's actually a wolf, and I'm pretty confident he knew that was a wolf when he took aim and fired. So uh, it just felt like uh, this is you know, crime against, uh, against the ecology. Yeah. I know a lot of your poems mm -hmm. come out of like the um, like things you read, like news, sure. like facts. Absolutely. Yeah. How did, did you, it occurs to me as we're talking like that I've, I know some of like your background, obviously, but and I know you weren't always into writing. How did you mm -hmm. even, how did you find the poetry? Especially because you, at the beginning, you just said that you've been doing fiction, which is all lies. Mm. But then I think of you more as poetry and here. So how, so how did you get? Yeah. So, well, how about I get into writing in general? How did I, how did I even think? Uh, I, I took a creative writing class uh, when I was in eighth grade and um, I really enjoyed it. And I, I remember writing about the 1908 earthquake in San Francisco. And uh, <laughs> I thought, I was really passionate about what I wrote, and I, and I thought, yes, I'm really into this, and um, Kathy Rogers, not the one from ARC, that's another story for another time, but, um, but not her, um, was the, uh, the, the teacher that came in to this school and, and uh, did a one-off one class over the summer, and I was so proud of my work, and, and she was patting on me on the shoulder and saying, yes, that's good job, Jason, and, and, uh, and I, as I recall, the word crushed appears like 50 times in this little three-page story. <laughs> so I was just, I was just, yeah, when you're, eighth, when you're in eighth grade, it's like you're, you just, your blood and guts is what draws you in. So you're, you're just thinking about people being crushed in here, crushed in there, and all these buildings coming down, the buildings crushed, poor, the animals were crushed. So many, it was crushing. And it was terrible. Uh, but I, <laughs> no, no, it really was. It was awful. It was, um, you know. But I would never, uh, I would never show that to anyone. I never <laughs> want to look at it again. But uh, I remember loving it. And then I reached a point in my life where I found out that I, I wanted to teach because I was working at a an ins major insurance company in in uh, California, and I was in the training development department, and I was uh, working in the in the development of training as well as training full-time and the schedule was insane. We were on salary. We were paid peanuts to be there 14, 15 hours a day and I was had a commute to Lodi and back and um, just kind of lose my mind a little bit over there. Uh, so I knew I wanted to teach and uh, when that all fell apart, uh, I sort of imploded over there. I mean, I not physically, but mentally, I definitely imploded over there. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a sight. <laughs> <laughs> been more, it'd be more crushing blows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The um, <laughs> for sure. So um, my son had moved out. I was in a place that I couldn't afford, unemployed, and uh, 
and I saw an ad on um, on the internet somewhere that said uh, grants were available for single parents that wanted to go back to school. And I thought, oh, what the hell? I, you know, I want to teach, and I don't really have the, you know, the the paper to say that I can do that. I know I'd be good at it. Um, and so I went to sign up, and I. It's funny, I really hadn't thought of a major when I went to go register for classes. I, I had no idea what I was going to do when I got there. And I remember that story that I wrote that was terrible, that I loved to, to do. You know, I, and um, and I, I put down that I was going to be an English major. I know it's, it, psychology was one of the options. I knew yeah. it was like psychology or English or um, kinesiology. or There were a lot of different elements I was looking at, but um, but yeah. That's what I went into for the last minute. And then you... Oh, and again... Then poetry was... Because again, that's fiction yeah. again. So... Are you, like, are you like me where... I mean, I, I always imagine that I'm going to write the great American novel, whatever that is. And, right. But I keep writing poems. So... <laughs> I don't... I have a character... Really, <laughs> there's a disconnect. Really, yeah. yeah. We're all, <laughs> I don't know. Now I've got a character in my fiction that is his job is he's trying to... He's spent his whole life trying to write the great American uh, novel or the great American collection of poems, and uh, he's not able to do it. And then he ends up trying to get his daughter to do it. And if it weren't for that uh, dealing coke in the '80s, he would have been fine. But, that you know, feel, no yeah, bad. shouldn't. If you're trying to develop yourself as a writer, dealing drugs is not the way to do it. I'm just here to tell you, kids, don't deal drugs or do them. That's good. Unless you want to write. Oh, no, no, no. So, <laughs> we had similar influences uh, at America for College. We had um, yeah. uh, Michael Spurgeon and um, uh, Tracy Gurdine, uh, um, of course, absolutely, for, poet, for poetics. And then on the fiction side, and I, I felt like I was being pulled in both directions. I, I saw Spurgeon's uh, appreciation for both poetry and fiction. Um, you know, granted, his uh, that novel that that uh, that he put out, uh, "Let the Water Hold Me Down," had um, everything that he ever wanted to do in writing in that book. Practically, it, it seemed like his entire history, from his lectures uh, that he cherished and held close to him, made it into that book. And I loved that about that. And then. Um, Christian Kiefer, with his writing, has just floored me. And so, even though um, Christian Kiefer is my go-to for how I want to model my approach to fiction, um, it's I think it's Spurgeon's passion and how he put his life into his work that I also combine into into the into the whole process. Um, so I decided I wasn't going to choose, and I, I uh, even when I applied for the grad program at Sacramento State. I did something unprecedented, and I didn't know this at the time. I applied for for both. I said I was going to do poetry and fiction as my grad program, and their algorithms were like, "No, you know, the, yeah, yeah." The algorithms, that's the algorithm. <laughs> and somewhere along the way, I kind of had. I, I felt like uh, Dr. David Toys was, was patting me on the arm, going, "That's okay. You'll figure it out. You know, you'll you'll get this. You'll you'll know which way because you have to choose. You can't do one. You can't do both. They don't. You can't have everything. Who was it?" Uh, Stephen Wright says, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? <laughs> the other thing he said about America is just he had a, he had a, a map of the United States. And uh, in, the, uh, in the key, it said one mile equals one mile. And my, 
Buddy and I tried to fold it last last year. It didn't work out. So it's full size. It's actual size. How do you? What do you do with a full size or actual size mask? How do you? Yeah, you, know, you got to walk to the place on the map. Right, and, and then, you're there. Yeah, you just follow the line, and you're there. It's Wouldn't the, that be great? It's like the it's the comedic Borges is what it is. It's oh the, yes, what we're gonna do now. So you're not choosing. Just going with either. Eventually, you're gonna have to choose. I'm on the spectrum. The test. Yeah. <laughs> um. One thing I wanted to ask about with your work too was because um, I struggle with it. I ecopoetics I got uh, really interested in, and but that sort of I don't I, won't, I don't mean that it was easy for me. I just mean that I I like I wrestled with it. I'm like, okay, cool. I can incorporate this. This yeah, works. Sure. And I felt like I could then sort of write with that. I could absorb the tools and then use the tools. Absolutely. And then, um, but one thing I found really fascinating, but that I feel like I also haven't been able to really like absorb and use is like surrealism or fabulism or just utter nonsense, you know? Um, and that's, <laughs> it. I'll read it and I go, that is so cool, you know? And I, <laughs> yeah. I see people apply it in different ways. And I know you, you have... Yeah, I have seen you do it really well. You have nah, a whole chapbook full of I do, wonderful yeah. surrealist poems. I, I, I mixed feelings. <laughs> I still go back to that one often. I'm not just not just stroking the interviewer here. This is good stuff. It's good. Yeah, I don't know. I it it was a good experiment. I enjoyed the experiment, but I don't know that I feel like I actually have those tools good. So I was going to ask you, what do you, it, you? I've seen you do it a lot. How do you? How does that affect you? What does that do? What do you? I what does think surrealism my, mean to you, and how yeah, do you yeah. use it? Like, okay, well, I mean, I feel like we live in pretty surreal times now. Uh, the socio-political climate is, is uh, oppressively bizarre, and um, and it's it's almost like it writes itself, and 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 the surreality is becoming difficult to create uh, <laughs> in a contemporary way because it's already very surreal to begin with. But uh, no, I feel like the only way to deal with a lot of reality because it is so absurd and you and you can't put it in a box you can't there's there's no way to emotionally deal with it you can try to logically assemble it or disassemble it but uh i i feel like you need that fabulism or surreality to step out of the the present and um and have a discussion that is you know the um it's how chicken coops look at the world. I don't know. You know, it could be any. What did I say in the, my my joke response? I said uh, the only way you can deal with reality, especially with a socio political climate such as ours here and now, is to step out clear outside the conventional system and speak to the absurd from roast beef chicken coop and talk frog to the potato ears and corn your way through some point of reason there within. I mean, reality has become surreality, and fabulism being the privilege appropriated voice from Chicano lit, where we used to call it magical realism, which is today's surreality, in the news, does nothing to satisfy, so we write our own. And I think that's, we try to have a conversation outside of reality so we can make sense of things. So, that, so you're saying like the tool of nonsense and strangeness is like a way of yeah, cycling back into some more... Sure, it, it's, a, it's a way we can kind of distance ourselves from the bullshit and and figure out a way to reassess and I can't say I've ever done it successfully my surreality my uh, obscure works I don't think <laughs> do that in fact one of them I was kind of an asshole um, was a response to someone in a peer workshop um, 
and she had written what the, the assignment was a surrealist poem and, and what she had written was a good poem. And I've told her this several times. It was a good poem, but it was not a surrealist poem. And so she did her part. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Yeah. This is, oh yeah, this is for Buddy. I did my part. I did my part. That's for Buddy. Just so he knows me. Anyway, you're welcome, Buddy. Um, so uh, my response to her was this crazy surrealist poem in itself, and then it ended up becoming, instead of just feedback, I rewrote it and, and expanded it and made it actually a surrealist poem. You have that? I do, I oh, do. Um, it's, uh, that was actually like a pretty legit segue. I feel good about that one. Sorry, Janet. I, I have to do it. Um, your poem was great. It was a great poem. It just wasn't surrealist, and I had something to say about that. So I, I did my part. I did, you did your part. Now I'm going to do mine. Don't talk to me about crazy tigers, burning bright or otherwise. Show me a plaid tiger sponsored by Burberry, sent by Brits to Old Man's Beach. A tiger that keeps its dead tennis eyeball dead set on us. Or use instead a hashish pinball machine and make it do bad things to apparently innocent pianos. And when you say a lady dressed in a fish scale bikini and speak of her breasts, I just want to see a blue fish scale lady and I want to look at her dugs or her teats, as we might call them, swaying in the ocean air. I want to see them milked by seraphim starfish, those keepers of protons, solar wind sailors, black matter tailors, mount on her torso clung to her scales with celestial maternal bonds. I want to see the old man from the beach hung out of her womb, his last six teeth secure in her placentia, La Playa de Amar. And I want to see the cord of birth as it squirms deep in his wrinkled ass, brings him agonizingly close to coming home the song he hums in Italian aria Non posso disperar, perhaps. So it's just like one bizarre thing after another. And I, and I just kept trying to ramp it up. And it's not too hard for me to do this. I, my brain sort of works on this level already. It's, it's kind of difficult, more difficult for me to bring myself down to the traditional rhyming couplets kind of scene. It just doesn't work for me because it's so literal and so on point. Yeah, a lot of this, I guess, it's like a um, sort of a thing with some surrealist works or like even ones that don't quite seem that way. Like I remember Andrew Kilmer did one that was, um, it was like people trapped in the snow eating each other and they had no faces yes. or something like that. that. That's an amazing work. And yeah. that was, um, but that one again in a similar way, it's sort of like the sound is what carries it. You know, it's almost like sure. one word has a similar sound to the next word and that sort of like yeah, that yeah. becomes the thread. So you can sort of have a lot of nonsense, but the sound is what sort of leads you through. It's almost musical in that way. Like you, yeah, you I, think you, the, I think that can become a problematic situation, too. Yeah. The sound can become a distraction. And with uh, surrealism, you really want the, uh, the non-sequiturs to speak for themselves. You really want uh, that sort of jumble of um, psychobabble to come across in a very succinct way. And sometimes that rhyme or... Uh, even wordplay as you go. And I do a little bit of it in that poem. Um, and I was aware of it when I was doing it that, oh, this could be this could be a problem. And so you should be always considering how 
different elements can detract from what you're trying to do in a poem. And with seriality, just saying the thing. I remember Tim Calls, you would do this a lot too. You, you just say the thing in a way that you see it. You don't try to make sense of sound in line to line. And somehow that seems to give um, uh, more fuel, more, uh, more weight to the message that's coming through in the poem. And is so it what do you careful? What do you what do you think makes it work though? Because I know I've I've read it, I've read those kind of things where they work. Sure. But sometimes I feel like I don't understand why. Like the um, you know, like uh, James Tate's um, yeah, the the astronauts. Yeah, um, that's the reference. Yeah, the yeah, yeah the Hashi's mm -hmm. pinball machine sure. raising a piano. That's it. The a lot of a lot of those, it's like they work, but sometimes I can't really like nail it down and say, oh, like I know why. Like right. that's that's like that tool thing. I feel like I read and I go, that worked. This didn't, but I can't make that happen. How do you make the, how do you make those words like stand on those? Is it just really stringing a bunch of strange phrases together? Do you think or what? Well, like I said, the, my brain works in in unusual ways. Uh, sometimes it's um, it all just kind of falls in place at once, and occasionally I do feel like I'm I'm trying to reach for something absurd, and and usually when I'm trying when I'm forcing it. I find that I end up not using that line. Yeah. So it's it's something that has to come all by itself. I really don't have an explanation for it, other than you kind of you shoot yourself into the the atmosphere of your consciousness and and you just sort of wait for the apex of that parabola, and 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 once you enter into that right sweet spot, things just start flowing. And I, other than that, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, it always reminded me of like automatic writing or sure. some of those like meditative practices in that way um the uh i heard acid trips from the audience oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, i mean that, i mean that is like the thing that is weird about yeah. it is like how do you rein that in how can you transform something that's so raw and associative that and kind of a disassociate you're having a sort of almost a disassociative experience that's linked mm. only by odd associations but then you're trying to transform that into something that someone is presumably going to read sure it's like a really bizarre... Well, I mean, uh, a lot of what I'm doing right now with composition um, studies, not related to uh, creative writing, but for my um, theory of teaching college composition studies, there are elements of, of being... Uh, okay, elements of considering audiences, I guess where I'm going with that. Hmm. Um, and if... And if you're just writing for you absurd things, it's, yeah, I mean, you can do that all day long, and it's, it's not going to be something that, um, that is pleasurable to read. But if you're considering an audience while you're writing this, and include yourself in that audience, and go back and read your work out loud, and, and if it's entertaining to you, if, you're, if there's something ineffable, something ephemeral that you can't quite put your finger on, that you find that really stimulates you know, their senses as you're going through it, then, then, you, then you know you're on to it. But if it's just kind of laying there flat, like I would say, um, purple frog, you know, um, green bicycle, um, burning star into my eyes. I don't know. You know, I, none of that makes any sense. It's they're paratactic. They're not entertaining. You know, just by mm. themselves. The, there has to be run through it um, this sort of current of of connectivity that you can only sense. Oh, that reminds me of something. Uh huh. Remind me of this. Uh, in fact, this is composition studies, believe it or not. This is uh, an excerpt from uh, Sandra Pearl's uh, essay, and uh, she cites 
Eugene Gendlin as saying, the soft underbelly of thought, a kind of bodily awareness that can be used as a tool, a bodily awareness that encompasses everything you feel and know about a given subject at a given time. It is felt in the body, yet it has meanings. And it is the body and mind before they are split apart. And I absolutely love it. Wow, that. yeah. I absolutely, I was just like, holy, this is in a composition book? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Like, <laughs> I was, holy, shit, this is amazing. <laughs> That's some Calm raw, theory. That's some <laughs> raw, real material right wow. there. Yeah. Give me some more of that. So I think um, there is sort of a, a sense that we can't put down in words that tells us what is going to be entertaining to our reader, or as a reader, what is going to be entertaining as you're going through it. Um, I've been recently reading um, Roberto Bolaño mm. and his uh, massive epic collection, The Unknown University, and the poems in there, as I'm going through, I can't, I'm, I'm trying to, I've done the, the exercise where I try to map out what it is in the poem that is, that is getting me to the place that, of enjoyment, and I, and I can't, I can't nail it down. It's just happening. You know, there are, there are certain moments where image comes into play, I was like, oh, so he, got, he shifts from a little bit of a narrative to image, but it's, but it's like I couldn't have come up with that image. That it, you know, so I don't even know how that's happening. I just know that I love it. And so I guess as a writer, if you have that experience where you're going back and reading your work again and you're seeing, you're having that experience, then you're doing good. Then you should keep doing that. That's the thing. You, know, you shouldn't, shouldn't back away from something you're enjoying as a reader after you've written it. Um, the danger of getting caught up and in love with, with the act of writing. Like, I've become now full of the experience, and I'm, ooh, I enjoy doing this. Well, that's not it. You need to be, you need to be enjoying as a reader as well. Yeah. Cool. That's really good. The, um, I think that that's an interesting thing sometimes about any kind of art. Like, I think poetry, some um, written art, you know, like there's a, outside of, you know, here in the gallery of Brick House, there's the, um, it's like, abstract expression it's throwback a lot of it has like like good lord it's pollock out there type like it's it's really intense mm -hmm. out there as far as like being in that like space of abstract expressionism it's really on the nose out there and it sort of makes you think like those are something something entirely abstract expressing mm -hmm. something that you can sort of walk by and take in and it just all you don't have to like it's it happens to you yeah you know there's no and the thing with written work um Sort of with music, except you get the bodily thing, so it happens yes. to you also. Mm -hmm. But is there is there's such like a logical progression? You know, you can't. It's hard to escape on the page the um, that uh, you know move to the end. That like constant like computer like logic. This word connects to this word, connects to this word, and moves sure. through. I think. And so I think it's really interesting. The I love what you just read as far as like trying to find a bodily thing, yeah. something that affects you on that level it takes you more towards other types of art that you can just that happen to you maybe that's why i like surrealism i've never thought about it that way until you said <laughs> that. like a, like a poem that can like sure happen to you as opposed to something you picked up and read you know i felt sorry for some of the students in this class because I, I a guy a couple of seats ahead of me and this is an undergrad class it's something i need a, one of the electives for my composition composition certification uh i just remember <laughs> 
All I heard was, what is this hippie shit? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> you know. Like, what are you going to do? The bottle. I just, that was a really cool passage. I've never heard that. I, yeah. So I'm still sort of like stuck in that passage in the bottle. You want to hear it again? Just kidding. Oh. Right. You don't read it again. No, I, I, for the sake of time, you're just going to back it up and yes. I'll do that later. But, um. It can, it's interesting because it makes me think of uh, from the last Coffee and Poets episode with uh, Frances Kukagawa. She yeah. was talking about the um, like the healing power of poetry and sort of like sure. that she was able to find um, that in therapy and teaching people to write poems that they were sort of suddenly expressing things and working things out that they were not able to do before. But for her, but for them, she was saying it was because they were suddenly having to take rigid things or like t they were taking experiences that were crazy for mm. them that were like really big that they didn't know how to deal with really raw but then they were forcing themselves to turn it into kind of almost like a narrative but they were ordering them and then this is almost like the other side of it it's almost like right take now you that you've ordered it it's like how can you then unorder it and kind of give back that more raw experience it's kind of like that what is it the the classic uh, ener poetry uh, poem is a conduit of energy. I'm, not, I'm butchering the quote. Oh, uh, no, no, no. The, I know what you're talking about. The, it's, the poet um, got it from somewhere and holds it in the poem and then right? transfers it. It's um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is it uh, Mallarmé? Oh, no. No, no, no. no. It's, it's, it's um, projective verse and I just came blanking on the No, name. no. I actually, Terrible students here. No, no. I actually have that book right here. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Toward the open field and no. projected verse is... Projected um, verse is... Is it Elliot? No, no. no. Elliot is the... Um, no. Shoot. Is it Valerie? Oh, it's not even... Abstract thought. It, this is um, going to be now the, the looking it up portion of the interview? I don't know. Are you sure it's not Mallarmé? It's absolutely not. Oh, you're right. It's not... It. Oh wait! It, oh, it's Olson. That's it. James, Charles yeah, Olson. Charles Olson. <laughs> Holy crap! Yeah, he was the one that. Oh, my favorite. I think one of my favorite. Um, Alma, when you're thinking of meter and poetry, um, he says, "Let me put it baldly, not badly. Let me put it baldly. There are two halves: the head by the way of the ear to the syllable, and the heart by the way of the breath to the line. But the 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 quote that you're talking about." is that energy that goes from the event, the creation of the poem, through the poet, where the reader picks it up, and then it becomes a different thing. And is this it right here? Yeah, the poem is a conduit, is what my note is off on the side. And he says, okay, then the poem itself must at all points be a high-energy construct. That's it. And at all points, an energy discharge. So... How is the poet to accomplish the same energy? How is he or she? What is the process by which a poet gets in all points energy, at least the equivalent of the energy which propelled him in the first place, yet an energy equivalent to the energy... Oh, I'm re reading that line. Yet an energy which is peculiar to verse alone and which will be obviously also different from the energy which the reader... I know, because he is a third, the reader, because he is a third term, a term, the reader is a term, 
we'll Olsen take writes away. the way Olsen writes. All right, all right. <laughs> like, all right. So what he's trying to say is, the, yeah, the, the point I think that like so yeah. it's interesting to me that like he's come from a completely different school, but this is like the that principle. You can take some of these like kernels and apply them. These sorry, things. I shouldn't have read that. that was, yeah. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have read that. <laughs> we should have just said, there's energy, the poet puts it into his poem, then the poem has this conduit it's a, of energy. It's a box of donuts. And then, and the then donut, it, they bake right. it. And then it becomes, it. yeah. I don't know. And then when the eater is eating the donut, it's a whole different energy entire because the donut eater is a third term. <laughs> made it happen. Made it happen. Something along those that lines. That plane, we're like, oh, I can't land it. Oh. No. oh, look and check out the bookmark I've got on that page. I love Hieronymus. Yes. Hieronymus. We have to Hero. remain Hieronymus. <laughs> Something we did last time, <laughs> that was not the good segue. Something we did last time for, is we did the questions from the audience. That's how we had, I feel like that, that might be cool. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I actually am taking that to Reno with me. I want to read that. Excellent. Yeah, I have that. You can't beat it. Uh, you can't beat but it. Are there any Yeah, any questions? questions That's a good, I didn't think about it. We've been talking for a minute. So you reached the point in your story about how you started writing at mm. a younger age and then it's sort of an academic position. Uh, uh, but to me, what I'm hearing as I'm listening to you said it, uh, all of your academic pursuits, and, and you literally have worked with the writing, <laughs> yes. um, it tells me that this is uh, really structured around a, a sort of academic position. And so I don't know, I'd like to hear a little bit about how that sort of academic side of writing has helped oh. you and kind of developed your thought forward. That's great. Yeah, so just for the the viewers, who are not here with us this morning, the question was, how does this very sort of scholarly, academic approach, what was it affect the... The, the, I mean, right. Because it does, it does seem unique that that is, yeah, that that yeah. is the, the theme, or part of the story as you started writing with. Sure. I mean, I guess like, yeah, I guess I could go back to the Hatchies pinball machine for a second. Um, As we all do at some point in our lives. Because it's, it's a circling back around. It's a thing that should be done in interviews. But um, uh, I kind of feel like, uh, as a student, the ball uh, rolling through and, and the, 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 the professors and uh, all the readings that I do are the, uh, all the elements within the pinball machine that I bounce off of. And... Um, it's probably not the best analogy, but I thought I'd go back to Hashi's pinball machine for a second. It's a good one. Um, yeah. I don't know. Education's kind of like the lathe, and I'm the wood, and you know, it, there's uh, it's, I get a groove here and a and a knob there and a shape here, and um, and it's all because of the different professors that have given me their wisdom and their passion in a certain direction. And then you read uh, all this critical theory and the lit side, and then uh, it gives you this bizarre sense of, um, well, being closed in and paranoid. <laughs> like um, Louis Althusser, for example, with the, the ISA structure, um, which is the uh, institutional state apparatus. Uh, mind you, it, when you try to protest now, it, you're just part of the system because because the system has a way of responding to protest. We've seen it. it's awful. 
But, you know, education is, in general, something that, uh, that helps you find out, I don't know, I don't know if it's who you are or, or what you want to be or, oh, here's the, here's the, here's the best thing. Uh, what's easier in life is, is not finding out who you are, it's finding out who you aren't. And I think education really does a good job of helping you figure that out. Who you're not, yeah. yeah I like that. That's, yeah. that's legit. Because I, I just, I, yeah. I think that's a good note there because I know a lot of people I talk to, I remember um, when I was first starting writing and hang, hanging out at Luda's all the time and I was wanting to go back to school because I was out and I would hear people say like, you don't need to go school to write. You know, the, you can just write and you can just have experiences. And that's, But I, I think that's a good, a good way of describing it. I like the lathe. Analogies is, is I think that a lot of times artists grow under a kind of pressure that you know they 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 attain new crystalline structures under pressure mm, that they nice would too. not have developed I like that outside of the weight that the crushing weight <laughs> crushing weight of academia. There's a lot of pressure. Uh, a lot of pressure. This oh, was originally I donut crumbs, Damn but it, now I it's the interview. Bring, <laughs> I was like, I, I, I was totally gonna bring sand, this piece of sandstone with me, and oh. say, and 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 because uh, it's like my, like a worry stone type of thing. But I don't call it a worry stone. It's like a reassurance stone for me. It's like I know that this thing was around thousands of years before we were, and it's probably gonna be around thousands of years after we're gone. And uh, this stone is better at being a stone because it's been. It's had the Malcolm Gladwell more than ten thousand hours of being a stone, so it's a professional stone, you know. Oh my God. And so we we are still trying to shape ourselves, but have we spent ten thousand hours at least on our writing, or you know, ten thousand years? We'll never be able to do, but the stone can. So it's gonna be. We'll never be better than the stone at being a stone. And that <laughs> is why we listen to Coffee and Poets, <laughs> taped here at Brickhouse Gallery. <laughs> Historic Oak Park. Jason, thank you for being here. Thank you for Letting inviting me. me. It was a pleasure. Talk with you publicly. Be good. Tune in next time. Every third Sunday, Ansaw has this little deal going. It's great. Thanks, Brookhouse thank Gallery. You. Brookhouse.